This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have the executive chef at 7908 Aspen, a season 18 Top Chef contestant and DACA recipient, Byron Gomez. Pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. This is so, so exciting. Thank you guys for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, looking forward to, to hanging out. No, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're probably our first real celebrity guest to come on to Immigration Nerds. <laughs> and so we're definitely excited about it, uh, specifically about your life's journey. And it exemplifies perfectly why DACA was created in the first place and why it is still needed today. So I, I thank you for taking out the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's, just, uh, it's, it's an honor for me. So really, really appreciate it. Cool. So let's get into your background a little bit. Obviously, you are a top chef today, but when did you first fall in love with cooking and what made you want to become a chef? Uh, I mean, I could trace it back. It's like a, like a two-stage part, pretty much. It starts with, uh, um, you know, internally a memory and a feeling. And then years later, it kind of blossomed into like, physically being in a restaurant and in the workforce, so on and so forth. So uh, I, I'm from Costa Rica. I was born and raised in Costa Rica. So, uh, my mom moved to the U.S. in 1995 due to family situations, alcoholism and like uh, domestic violence. And, and she, she fled to the U.S. for, for a better life. Uh, and then my dad got his, his act together and came here and, and, and reconciled with her and, and you know, worked very hard to get the three kids, me and my two sisters that were left in Costa Rica. Months later, we came and reunited the whole family here in the U.S. But prior to that, I remember vividly, I was maybe five or six years old, and and, and we would have these family gatherings uh, every Sunday specifically. And my one of my uncles had like a little mini bus, and he would go and, and pick everyone up, or my cousins, my other aunts, uncles, and they would come over to our house. And the, the guys would go and like, um, they would go and watch the local soccer league and then the ladies will be in the kitchen just yapping away and preparing this meal and uh, my cousins will be playing all around the house and um, I was always drawn to the kitchen um, just because uh, it was more calm uh, it was like a little bit more fun just seeing the ladies cook and, and having a laughing and everything uh, and I was getting fed you know, on the table. So that, that was really good. You the know, best perks. Yeah. Little snacks. This you get the food first. huh? So, um, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So then moving to the U.S., uh, I got deprived from that. Mm-hmm. All of that got stripped away from me. And being in a new country, new language, new culture, uh, being a minority, we didn't have none of that growing up. So I always yearned that. I always wanted to have that feeling back again into my life. And then psychologically down the road, that kind of affected me in certain ways, this and that. But uh, that was like the first food memories that I got and how impactful food was for me in in, in a sentimental and emotional level. Um, And then I was, what, 15? There was a summer. um, We were off from school and a family member of mine, uh, of ours, uh, approached my parents and like, hey, we need, uh, he's a general manager of a restaurant. He was like, hey, we need some hands this summer inspiring willing to come in and, and give us a hand and it was at a very famous restaurant world renowned mm. called burger king <laughs> uh and then uh, you know top echelon <laughs> yes 
Exactly. So, uh, so I was like, yeah, let me give it a shot. And I really fell in love with cooking there. And it's not even cooking, you know, Burger King's not, yeah, you know, they cook, but it's not like at the level that I've done it. And that's what sparked my interest. And after that, I worked at another very famous restaurant called TGI Fridays, which I don't even know those are around. Mm -hmm. Honestly. Yeah. I don't even know if those are around, but, uh, it started there. It started and it started progressing from level of service to level of food experiences to the point where one of my biggest accolades or I could say achievements was working at a three-star Michelin restaurant, 11 Madison Park, and being able to uh, be a sous chef there. And during that time, we got awarded number one restaurant in the world in 2017. Wow. So uh, that was like the pinnacle of my career. Besides kind of, you know, taking over projects that I'm doing now, uh, that's how I pretty much started it. And, uh, in a nutshell, that's how it kind of ended, but it's still going. Yeah, that's amazing. So you have to tell us a little bit about that transition from Burger King to TJIF Fridays, then a three-star yeah. Michelin restaurant. I feel like there's a gap in between <laughs> of how did you oh, make yeah, that about, jump? There's about, there's about 12 years, 13 years of the gap in between. So then I left TGI Fridays. I remember one incident, I was, I was started as a line cook and a year later I moved up to like the highest station, which is the grill station at TGI Fridays. You know, I was never really like a shy guy. Like I am a little bit throughout my whole life, like the system and, you know, growing up in a minority community where there was always that fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can't go out there because you're going to get caught and then you might get deported or you can't say this or you can't do that. I was always the opposite. Um, and, um, really committed myself to cooking. And I remember one time there was an incident where a guy, I was changing his equipment because I was working the lunch service. He was working the night service. So I just changed everything so he could start clean. And I was a young kid and no one has really seen anyone move up the ranks that fast. Mm. And I guess being that good in cooking uh, that, you know, he, he probably got in the way, he got upset because I was touching his stuff, you know, and then he like dropped a pan and kicked it and he cut my leg. And I remember vividly, he's saying, you're never going to be anything past a line cook, um, because of your immigration status and because of who you are. So I took that to heart, um, really got upset at that time, but I took it as a fueling agent throughout my career. Left that, moved to New York City. I grew up in Long Island, New York. Moved to New York City. Never had any culinary schooling. Pretty much just worked in a chain restaurants. And I decided to apply to one of the biggest name chefs in the world, Daniel Boulou, a French restaurant. And I was, he was hiring and I was like, should I do it? Should I not? And I'm like, okay, well, I'm an immigrant. I could get deported anytime. I'm a minority. I never went to culinary school. So all the odds were against me. The only thing that I had was courage and drive and persistence and maybe hard headed. <laughs> but I was like, let, let me just try it. Uh, I applied, they hired me and I was with Daniel Bolu for five years. Uh, and that was my culinary school. I worked at, he has seven restaurants in New York at that time. Uh, now with pandemic, things have changed. And I worked at five of the seven restaurants. And one of this was where I got my first Michelin experience. So in the restaurant world, you have the Michelin guide and they hand out stars. And the, the most stars that you can get is three. So it's a one star, two star, and three star. Um, and as a restaurant worldwide, the biggest you can get is three. So 
I worked at a one-star restaurant, really started from the bottom, worked my way up, worked for him for five years, classically French trained uh, and whatnot. And after five years, I'm like, you know what? I want to start from zero. I want to start all over and I want to see what a two-star restaurant is like. Then I applied at a restaurant called Atera in New York City. And this is a two-star Michelin, but it's not classical French. Now this is Scandinavian Nordic, which is food from Denmark, Finland, Sweden, uh, you know, the, Nord, uh, the Nordic uh, countries in Europe. So it was totally different, totally different cuisine, totally different culture, ingredients, service style. And uh, yeah, I crushed it, worked there about for a year, year and a half. And then I was like, okay, I've done a one star. I've done a two star. I've done European food, classical. I've done modern. What else is next? Let me just apply for a three star. And that's when I ended up at 11 Madison Park. And during my time, 11 Madison Park, we got the award of number one restaurant in the world, which is a yearly award given uh, worldwide to different restaurants. Uh, and that was amazing. I mean, there's a documentary on Netflix called Seven Days Out. Uh, you're able to see me if you kind of glance through the whole okay. documentary. Yeah, I'll put that um, on the list. So yeah, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was a great time to be alive. And and here I am, as an immigrant kid who all the stacks were against him, uh, working on the number one restaurant in the world, being a sous chef, and possibly I I strongly believe I was the first Costa Rican to reach that pinnacle in culinary at this time and age. Wow, that's amazing. So it's something that I felt really, really proud of. And um, that's when I started free talking about my, my immigration status. Literally till the Obama administration, everything was behind, behind the scenes. Nobody really knew who I was or, or, or my situation here. Um, but after that, I was like, okay, I think I have the confidence because I've proven myself that all the odds are against me and I'm going to do what I need to do. And then DACA came around, that helped me out. And now I uh, got the privilege and the honor of the opportunity of being one of the 15 contestants from nationwide to be on this two season's Top Chef in Portland. Amazing, amazing. Coming from such humble beginnings uh, without formal training, right? And to work yeah. at a top you know, Michelin restaurant, the competition yeah. is so high there. Right? Oh, uh, tell me about it. <laughs> He's like, no, I know. I've been through it. <laughs> I did it. Yeah. Um, so could you talk about navigating that career and that journey, knowing that you're undocumented, you're, you're a DACA recipient, what sort of fears, um, what sort of challenges were I know that you explained that one guy said, "Well, you'll never go beyond mm -hmm. uh, a sous chef because mm -hmm. of your status, right?" And I know there's yeah. a, a lot of other DACA recipients who may feel fearful of reaching for their goals and attaining yeah. uh, a higher level because in fear because of the, their status. So, mm -hmm. um, how did you work through those challenges? Um. Okay, let's start with how, and I mean, I couldn't maybe phrase it any better. Once DACA came around and, and the government was like, okay, these are DACA recipients and AKA dreamers. So it, it starts with that. It starts with, you, you need to have a dream, man. 
you need you need to know you you may not know where you're gonna the steps are gonna lead you to you may not know where the finish line is but you need to know that you need to get up and start walking somewhere and things are gonna happen uh, never in a million years I would imagine all the stuff that's happening in my life now and yes they're, they're, they're fruits of hard work and all the labor that I put in and all the hours but uh, growing up <clears throat> there's always that fear. Um, you not be able to reveal yourself fully to anyone outside of yourself or your family because you're in that fear of being like, well, uh, somebody might find out that I'm working with like kind of fake papers. But at the end of the day, I need to work. I need to sustain myself. I need to sustain my family. And that's the tricky part that people think that we're enemies. In reality, we're not. I'm one prime example of like, Yes, I did it the way it was handed to me because there was no other option, but I'm not lynching onto the system and sucking away the blood because that's not what I want. All I want is an opportunity. All I want is my American dream. So yes, um, it was a transition where I'm 32 years now, 32 years old now, and I'm starting to realize who I am as a human being, as a chef, because growing up, I couldn't say much about my story. So I had to fake it a lot. I had to put on that clown face, you know, every morning, strap on that mask, that smiles, everything is great. But at night, take it off and being like, look at myself in the mirror and be like, I don't want to lie to people. And I don't want to put in, be put into some comfortable situations where I have to explain to people why I'm not legal. But yet again, I'm doing everything in my capacity to be more of this culture, of this country, because... I am from Costa Rica, but I'm not from there. I grew up in the U.S., but I'm not from here. So there's always that identity um, crisis that I, I, even till now I'm dealing with. And, and being on Top Chef kind of made me realize that we don't have to marginalize ourselves into a box, whether that's professionally, whether that's socially, personally. This is America. It's free. We could do whatever we want. And that's the beautiful part about being part of this society and this country, um, that if you look at my food, I'm an immigrant kid that grew up in New York City, worked at many various cuisines, world-renowned restaurants. So if people look at me and be like, oh, well, you're not Costa Rican enough because your food is not fully Costa Rican, so what? Well, you're doing classical French food, but you're not French. So what? So if you look at my cuisine, it's just a melting pot of some of my dishes. I incorporate Peruvian ingredients with Japanese techniques and like, uh, you know, garnishes from like the Nordic uh, countries. When you look at it, it looks beautiful. It's artistic. And when you taste it, you're like, it makes sense because adding acidity from a yuzu uh, from a yuzu fruit is the same thing as adding acidity from a lemon, but except yuzu is from Japan, a lemon is more known in any mm. other country, mm -hmm. but it's still acidity. That's the point that you are trying to get to, and there's no boundaries. So to me, those are the fears that I faced, obviously being like, I can't apply here because I'm not accepted or they're going to check my paperwork or this and that. That was a thought that crossed my head was it was never the final decision of making any decisions, whether it was professionally or personally. But your your hard work and determination to work through 
those obstacles uh, shows today and the value that you bring to this country, right? And there's nothing yeah. more American than taking parts of other cultures. And, and because of your background, you do it through food, right? So, Correct. you know, here in America, we have a, a mix, a, a beautiful soup of different cultures, and you actually exactly. put it into your soup, <laughs> the Nordic and the French <laughs> and the Costa Rican. So, you know, you're, you're more American than most of us, uh, because <laughs> you definitely take the time to learn the different techniques exactly. of each of the culture's yeah. dishes. So that that's amazing. Yeah. And then the last thing I want to say about bringing value as a dreamer, 5% of dreamers start businesses, right? 16% mm -hmm. buy homes. Um, over 800,000 recipients add about $500 billion to the U.S. economy. So <laughs> when it comes to people who are proponents on the other side saying, oh, they just take from the country, mm -hmm. they're they're leeching from our services and our and our social mm -hmm. programs. It's quite the contrary, and that has been debunked time and time again. Yeah. It is, and, and it's hard to be put under that microscope. It's hard to be to to be judged like that. I mean, uh, now that I'm in um, you know uh, public eye, and I guess reaching some kind of celebrity status. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I read a comment on a post on, on a newspaper article posted my story and, and one of the comments was like, well, he is like that, but his parents are criminals. They broke the law. Instead, I put myself out there and, and people are going to judge and people are going to say whatever they need to say. It's okay. It's very brave, it's honestly. Like, <laughs> very brave of you. Yeah. Why, why the reason? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's the thing. Like, we need to educate ourselves. Um, instead of pointing the finger... Just remember that there's three fingers pointing back at you <laughs> when you're literally making this gesture. So, you know, just always check yourself. And, and, and maybe if I wasn't a dreamer, maybe if I wasn't DACA, maybe if everything was handed over to me so easily, maybe I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. Yeah. So in a way, I see it as a blessing. It's not something that hindered me. It's a blessing to, to, to keep on pushing, to keep on being the best that I could be on a, on a personal level, on a, a professional level. And, and I mean, this obviously scares. I mean, the last administration, a, a, every day I was waking up in fear, but that's not gonna stop me. My present doesn't determine my, my future. That's not gonna stop me from going out of the house. A, a rainstorm is not gonna stop me from leaving my home and getting to where I need to go. There's always an umbrella and boots you can strap on and still go about your day. Absolutely. So, we have to get to Top Chef. We have, we have to get to Top Chef. Yes. And uh, in terms of the, the last one that I got to check out was the, the Restaurant Wars. And All right. That's, that's like one of the best episodes of the whole season. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure. It's just, okay, you, you're broken up into two different teams. You have about five or six dishes that you have to yes. make, but it's right yes. in front of the chefs. Yep maybe eight feet away, you have to prepare it yep. in front of the chefs who will review your work, you know, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So how do you deal with the, the pressure of cooking directly in front of the chefs that will review your dishes? 
Well, one thing that was very familiar to me is, uh, and I think just working in Michelin restaurants, you know, the standard, you know, the culture, you know, the body movement, how quiet we need to be, how the swan effect, mm. the swan effect is that you're gliding on top and it looks so peacefully above water and it's beautiful swan, <laughs> but underneath, but underneath it's, it's there's kicking. turmoil, <laughs> but you can't show that, you know, and, and that's a lot of like self-restraining and, and, and discipline and emotions. And that's something that in the Michelin world, they, 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 you know, you learn that as part of like what it takes to work at this high pressure establishments. Um, so throughout my career, I guess that prepared me to this one episode, okay. if you want. So you weren't, that. you weren't sweating, um, you weren't sweating. <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's always, uh, there's always that time element, which, you know, time sneaks up on you if you're not really aware, but uh, as an executive chef, you need to have control of everything, you know, um, it's like conducting an, an opera. You know, you know when like the tempo is like what the tempo is, and this guy's gonna keep that tempo. So you kind of distract your mind from that. But now the crescendo is coming from this side of the room, and you gotta control that and time it. And and, and so it's it's all of that that throughout my career, I've kind of um, honed on those skills. Secondly, uh, my second Michelin star, my two star Michelin restaurant called uh, Atera, which I worked at, it's the same like concept. It's an open kitchen, eighteen courses uh 20 people one seating you do two seatings a night so you're cooking for 40 people wow. 18 courses each seating so you have to have that composure you can't be dirty you can't be like you don't have your your, your your stuff together and and that energy oozes out onto the guests onto the kitchen and everything so you, you got to keep your cool um that too working with a very team where uh, three other very talented chefs that uh ego wasn't in the way it was like okay well, we all want to be expediters. We all want to be the executive chef because that's what we do for a living. We all want to be either the general manager that smooshes the, the, the crowd. What happens to the other two people? So then it's a, it's, it's a conflict of like a social experiment. How are they going to react to, to, to who wants to be on the top? And we realized that it's not about a pride. How I saw it was, yes, I wanted to be the executive chef. Yes, I wanted to be the general manager. But I got, I chose to look at what I call a mosaic painting. A mosaic painting is like a thousand little pictures yes. that make this one big picture. So if you look at it very closely, let's take, I don't know, Marilyn Monroe. And it's like one picture of Marilyn Monroe. And the, the further you step away, then it's 10, then it's 20. Then, and then it's Marilyn Monroe's face mm -hmm. with different shades. And that's how I look at it. I was like, well, I'll be the guy that collects the, the food, the dirty dishes. I'll be the guy that pours the water, that pours the wine. I'll be the guy behind the scenes that's still very vital Team to the success of this service and this restaurant. That's exactly it. Because at the end of the day, I'm a chef, but a chef is a mentor, is a teacher, and it's a servant. Mm -hmm. And I'm okay with being that because that's what makes me happy. Man, yeah, that, that was great. And just the amount of detail and creativity that's put into making these dishes and knowing which it's, order yeah. to put which dish, right? Whether... Uh, something is a little bit lighter. It's like, okay, let me do the light dish first. And then we go into the more heavier savory and then we'll end it with a nice yeah. tang and sweetness. And you're kind of taking them through this little journey, this arc, <laughs> this flavor arc. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> and on top of that, now you have to add visual and you have to add cooking time and you have to add presentation and you have to add flow and energy. And like, you know, like in reality, in reality, uh, in real life, it takes about a year to open a restaurant mm. to fully get everything how we through. sold on top chef. Right. It takes about a year. 
to do that. And we did it in 36 hours, um, which was amazing. I mean, even Tom said, he goes like, this is the best Top Chef uh, restaurant wars that we have had in 18 seasons. So I wonder how they're going to top that off. Yeah, this yeah, I heard that. I heard that. I was like, woo, okay. That's high ground right so there. So it was something to, to, to feel proud of, for sure. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Wow. And that's 7908. I know with the COVID restrictions and requirements, they're starting to loosen up those restrictions. How has it over the last year impacted the restaurant industry? Uh, maybe impacted you personally? And is it uh, opening up more? How is how is yeah. business? Yeah. Uh, I mean, let's start from last year uh, when we got the call that they're pretty much saying tomorrow the whole thing shuts down, uh, and we were like, "Oh my God, what's going on?" Um, it was a time that I had off, so professionally speaking, it was very shocking. But then, um, personally speaking, that's when I got the opportunity of being on Top Chef. That's when I got the casting call. They're like, I, I, uh, would, would you be interested in, in possibly going through this very rigorous application process and you know, being uh, one of the new cast members for season 18? And I was like, well, there's no better time. There's no better time in my life right now than the restaurant being closed. Let's say I have all the time in the world and sure, why not? So that happened. Um, and then the summer was like pretty slow just because of all the restrictions and whatnot. Uh, winter came around. It was one of our hardest winters where uh, luckily, um, you know, uh, we have owners that are very, very gracious and very um, inspiring. And they really want to be part of this industry that they were able to, you know, uh, kind of work things out where things didn't go underwater and they just kept it on float, uh, which is a very big, big blessing to compare to other restaurants, big restaurants around the world that have closed down. So we got really lucky in that end. The band has been restricted now. I think that's starting this afternoon. Um, we, whoever doesn't want to really needs to wear a mask or anything like that. Uh, things are more openly. Uh, we are revamping our patio outside. Uh, we're putting in new furniture, new floor, just so uh, kind of revamping the whole business idea of it. Uh, we're trying to hire people. We're trying to get this energy back into town, into 7908. We're doing a really beautiful summer menu that people haven't seen before, cocktail menu. So, uh, yeah, we're doing our part just to feel more alive than like the pause that we have had the last year. And it's actually very nice. It's actually very nice. Uh, very good energy. Uh, and I think people are ready for it. Yeah. I mean, people yeah, have been caged <laughs> up or like locked in. They're ready to get out. Enjoy ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're ready. Exactly. So, uh, so things are good. You know, we're still taking our precautions. We're still taking all the measurements that we need to take according to local government and national, you know, CDC regulations. But um, yeah, we we're very excited to open for this new season here at 7908. So, if you're in Aspen, try to make a reservation. Hey, because, uh, we're man. getting booked up pretty quickly. <laughs> Please, okay. I need to have your your favorite dish, whatever is your go-to. Awesome. <laughs> chef selection, whatever is chef selection. I'm there Great. for it. I'm there Great. for it. No, I, I appreciate <laughs> awesome. you taking the time and, you know, thinking about your story and the immigrants mentality, as we, we like mm -hmm. to say, that that hustle, that yeah. drive with DACA starting in 2012. The program has been running long enough that many of the children now are adults today. Exactly. So now yeah. we can begin to see the fruits of this program's labor. 
and yeah. you are quite the shining example. So I just thank you so much. Thank you for for telling your story. Of course, of course, and thank you for for having me over, for listening, and giving me this great opportunity to share with other people. All right, I'll see you in Aspen. Will do, will do, brother. Can't wait. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.